They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back again here on Illuminati. Can I mean, my family <laughs> thinks I'm crazy. And yes, I did just misspeak, but it was intentional because my friend Juan Ayala returns to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, which we've done so many shows together. I can't even remember when you were ever on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast just as a guest. Has that happened yet? Or is this your first time I'm being uh, solo interviewed by me. This is the first time solo I've been on, but it's been usually with somebody else. Huh. Interesting. So Interesting. We're, we're here solo. Juan on Juan. And Style. even, yeah, and even, even this time I almost uh, bitched out and got Thomas in here for this, but uh, I think I'm finally ready. I've I've studied Juan for months, nay years, and I'm finally ready to interview him one on one. Uh so long as my live stream doesn't totally shit me out. Uh oh, encoding overloaded. Maybe we shouldn't stream until I have better internet. Um anyways. <laughs> yeah, you're kinda on kinda lagging out a little Glad bit, to bro. Have you here. Can you hear me, bro? Well, I sound really good and crystal clear on my end, so everybody listening to my recording will know what I'm saying, but I guess, yeah, you can't hear what I'm... Can you hear me now? You can hear me now. I think we're good now, yeah, but it's doing that whole where you play, where you stop and then you go really fast and it's catching up, like, the connection. (laughs) Oh, gosh. All right. Well, my recording is fine. Yours is a little... uh, Has some latency. My fault, not yours. But, uh, okay, okay. Restart. Here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And, uh, yeah, we settled it. Juan has never been on the show as an individual guest. And uh, he's here to pop my cherry uh, as, (laughs) as an interviewer. So, what's going on, Juan? Welcome to the podcast. How are you, brother? Just want to say I'm a big fan of My Parents Think I'm Crazy. I think it's such a great podcast, covers so many topics, and I just, I love it, man. So thank you for having me, but not much is really going on. Like I was ranting to you a little bit before we jumped on about how sometimes with this whole research game, spread myself too thin, right, complain about it, say I'm not going to do it again, end up doing it again, complain about it some more, say I'm not going to do it again, and it's a whole, this endless cycle of this esoteric 
research game, but life's good. Can't complain. Healthy. Family's good. So I'm here to party, bro. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. So let's get to it, bro. Let's get into it. Yeah, we have some really fascinating things to talk about today. But considering that I haven't had you on the show for a proper interview yet, I do want to ask you a little bit about your um, time before starting the one-on-one podcast. Uh, I know you you had a podcast before you officially called it the one-on-one podcast. But even before that, you have sort of an unconventional path than most podcasters and even just most people. Uh, I haven't met many Pentecostal Christians just because I don't live in the South. I think it's more popular in the South. It's, it's There's more Pentecostal churches down there. But I've heard you say in other interviews that you experienced some supernatural, some strange paranormal things through being a, a Pentecostal Christian. So did you experience anything like yourself, like an enlightening experience, uh, quote unquote, like? What was that like, being a Pentecostal Christian? So when I say I've experienced certain things, it's more from the point of witnessing like people be healed or people who couldn't otherwise walk. All of a sudden, they start they get up and they start walking. And it happens when the Holy Spirit, if you will, is in the house or whatever they call it. And being part of the worship group so being part of i was a guitarist for my church for a lot of years and being part of that you could feel the energy when it would start to produce and i think it what what's what's happening with with all my research in the occult is it's the collective conscious right not throwing out the baby with the bathwater as far as trying to disprove religion and trying to disprove God. Cause I'm not here for that. I'm just saying from a logical perspective, as logical as it, it can get from the collective conscious. Cause even that it's subjective, but I think that it was people right. Manifesting right, not throwing out the baby with this, this collective, I don't want to say egregore thought form, but the energy, man, it would just right, start to out the baby with the, it would just start to manifest and you could feel the change in the air. It was a very weird experience. You could feel it. You can feel the tension, the energy. And I would see things again. I don't know if it was the Pentecostal way where they would faint and jump around and speak in tongues. Cause that's part of it. But I, I saw other things other than that, as far as like people being healed and like miraculous Oh, it's got a name like spontaneous healing or whatever it was called. I forget the name exactly, but yes, I did experience it. I never experienced anything as far as like an enlightenment or anything of that nature, but I did feel what they would call or refer to as the Holy spirit. And I think that a congregation together would manifest that right. Yeah. When, a, when a group of people comes together, they're able to cause some sort of change in the atmosphere, especially when they're all in the same frequency, which that's what we were there for, though, as the worship to line people up with the music, lyrics, and the praise. Prayer is a sort of meditation. It's magic. You're projecting things out into the ether. 
And I'm not saying I don't, again, I'm not saying I don't believe in God. I do believe in God. I do believe that there is a higher power that is orchestrating everything and holding everything together. I just don't subscribe to the mainstream dogmatic views of mainstream religion. I think it's, it's more of power and greed, right? They want money all the time. And I think that once you start to do that, then it starts to corrupt the religious movement, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I I believe that miracle has another term within either Catholicism or or maybe just Christianity. And it's funny how they do that, right? How they compartmentalize certain. Um, the stream is lagging. We're just gonna we're just gonna rock solid through it. Okay, that's right. why I did speaker view because we're still gonna use this episode. Uh, whether it goes out to the live stream people or not. So we'll just burn right through it like there's no live stream problems. And then, you know, for people who want me to do live streams, consider this a test run, okay? If it's a little laggy, if it's a little shitty, this is a test run. Uh, I am moving into a new apartment eventually. Nice. So I will have better internet soon uh, within the next two months. So, but anyways, uh, enough about that. It is funny how they kind of, uh, you know, again, compartmentalize religion and these different aspects of our reality. I think in the Catholic church, they have a different word for miracles because they don't want you to go and research this. They want, Mm. they want it to be absolutely hard for you to go and find the official book on, you know, miracles, but it exists. They keep record of this kind of stuff. They just name it, you know, some word that probably ends in the letters T-I-O-N, right? Because it's Latin. They try to put everything into a shun, right? <laughs> they mm. shun everything. But uh, when it comes to your Pentecostal upbringing, I heard another thing, an anecdote you mentioned, that they're always kind of trash-talking the other denominations. Is that something that uh, was particular to like the church that you're a part of, or is that something that is kind of a thing within Pentecostal Christianity. That's from a personal observation. And there's 44,000 different denominations of Christianity alone. So it's like, they can't even, I always point out, they can't even decide. They, they argue about these intricate details. And that was one of the things that they would do at my church. There was always like these missionary Sundays and they would bash other countries. And I would always question like, wait a minute, what what if they've never heard of you, of our God, mm. right? God died for everyone's sins, but what if they were never presented our God and they're going to automatically go to hell? But then there's like this cl- clause where it kind of exempts them from going to hell. And then I would always think about how I'm going to hell in somebody else's religion and vice versa. So how does that even work out? And again, it's all about manipulate. At the end of the day, I think that organized religion is about manipulation and as a Pentecostal even thinking against the the ideas even thinking against the church even doubt doubt just doubt alone is blasphemy it's heretical so by me asking about extracurricular non-canonical texts from the bible which is what started it all for me that was blasphemous. That was like, no, those are the work of the devil. But it's not that. It's that it, it those other texts that you're reading, like these Nag Hammadi and the Dead Sea Scrolls and these Gnostic texts that 
predate Christianity. It was un- the underground Christianity or parallels it. It's it's gonna shatter your paradigm that you were presented and pushed into essentially. So by them, by those texts breaking you free from what you thought was true this whole time, that's bad for them because then you break away from their congregation and their their soul mining pool. I guess you could call it. I think that they're just they have these pools of energy and that they're able to tap into as a collective, right? Like these different world religions, they all have their own souls that they can tap into like some reservoir. And I mean, we can talk about that a little bit, but yeah, that's how it started for me. When I start to question certain paradoxes in the Bible and my grandma, she's done like exorcisms and she's very religious. And I grew up with my grandma. I grew up living with her, since I was young and then I finally moved out when I was finally starting high school and I could drive then I moved in with my dad and that's really when I stopped going to church and kind of I I actually started doing fishing videos before I ever started the podcast and I had two podcasts (laughs) at one yeah I had the Juan on Juan that's always been the main one and then I started the Juan hour which that's only available on the Patreon now but it was just like me for an hour just talking to myself or my wife or somebody and that was when I was like trying to find my footing in the podcasting game, trying to find that niche, listening to podcasts like Joe Rogan or Tinfoil Hat. And then I just wanted to really nail it down. And I think I, I think I was able to nail it down from like episode 46 and on really is when I started to find my footing. And ever since mm. I've been going, going strong, man. Mm. Well, that is fascinating to hear it go full circle like that. Um, I'm going to end a variation on that too. That that it couldn't be the one hour because Juan couldn't keep everything that he wanted to say to just one hour. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, bro. That's exactly what happened. I was like, too much information, and they're like, if I had a guest on, it would go on for like two hours. So I was like, mm, time to retire it, and I eventually did. But then. It's like how we're we're talking about you want a change of scenery when it comes to talking about these different topics. You want to be able to branch out. So you start your side shows, Esoteric America, Dopamine Deep Dives, Occult Book Club, Luminati Confirmed, because you just get, right, you want a change of scenery. You want to change things up and change up the pace and see what sticks. I mean, I think that this is part of the process, really finding your footing. And most importantly, as long as you're having fun, I think that's where the the secret is if you're passionate about something i think it starts to show in your work and when people see how passionate you are and the love that you put into it i think it starts to that attracts the people again it's got to be good too it can't just be garbage but i think it starts off by (laughs) having fun (laughs) you know what i mean yeah speaking of finding your footing uh we're just finding our footing here with the live stream, unfortunately, I'm going to bail on the live stream. So if you're listening to this, uh, well, I guess you wouldn't be because I already ended the live stream. But in other news, better news, our friend Thomas of Paranoid American has jumped into the conversation. Welcome, Thomas. I wanted to invite you here almost as like a uh, surprise to one and maybe even a little bit of uh, uh, of a bribe in some way. Uh, 
Uh, I couldn't get the cake. Mark wanted me to show up in a cake and jump out of the cake. It was going to be like a whole thing, but I couldn't yeah. put it together. Well, he doesn't know well, that heard... we were on the phone for like an hour and a half before we actually. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I heard on the cult book club that, you know, uh, paranoid American Thomas here is wearing pasties. So I figured the next step up would be to jump out of a cake. You, but... you know what it is, dude? We're just moving so fast. It's only like those marathon runners that have to wear the pasties. Otherwise, their nipples <laughs> bleed what? like two miles in you never heard that before no. it's like we're we're moving so fast bro it's you the friction it, of the shirt if like yeah. if you run for you know for two or three hours it. it's like are... sandpaper on your on your nipples yeah but that's... you guys are flipping through the pages of the occult correct bro so quickly you can't that's be exactly it. your 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 pa- your page turning arms you gotta keep <laughs> Your arms and your nips unchaped. <laughs> That's right. Why does this all look so new to you, Juan? You've been doing the Occult Book Club for 13 episodes now. This is episode 13. I think that I want to know when the last time that Paranoid American ran. That's what I, that's what I want to know. I don't think he's ran in, in Oh, dude, the, the last day I was in the military, probably. <laughs> and I hated every single second of it. Dude, I've, ne- I've never liked it even. Yeah. If you've ever seen Thomas's legs... If he wears shorts, and if you see it, they're almost transparent. You know for a fact <laughs> this dude doesn't go outside, bro. His legs are like freaking. I've got a pool. I mean, I'll stick them in the pool sometimes, but yeah, no, I don't. I don't like the Florida sun, man. I was born in upstate New York, and every time I go there, I cry when I have to leave again. Even though everyone lives in shacks in the town I'm from, uh, like the weather's nice. Sounds in New miserable. York. Yeah, Oneonta, New York. Oh, right on. Right on. Otsego County. It's right right outside of Cooperstown's like the the biggest town near Oneana that I'm aware of. Yeah, so you're you're from the headwaters of the Susquehanna River. Yeah, dude. I mean that Uh-oh. those are my roots. It's where I grew up, but I moved away when I was like eight or nine and then went back every single summer for the next four or five years and then didn't go for decades. Wow, very interesting. So you must know the Freemasonic connections to baseball and all that through Cooper. Oh, dude, yeah, Cooperstown. Yeah, the Baseball Hall of Fame was like my go-to. I I never really liked baseball to like watch it, but I just always loved the ceremony of it. Not from a Freemason perspective, but just the trading cards and like their celebrities and dude, like Daryl Strawberry, like these these names and Jose Canseco and like I. I was too young to appreciate what they were actually doing athletically. You know what I mean? But well, I fell in love like, with like the mythology behind them. Well, and to your point, great turn of phrase there, because it seems like the theosophy of that day was infused into sports and gave gave the public these sort of uh, mythologized figures who excelled at their game, you know, whether it was football, baseball, you know, you had these early like legends of this sport. And I wonder how much of that was informed by theosophy and these ideas of like the avatars and the ideas of like, you know, these uh, ascended masters, like by being in a hall of fame, you're almost like you've ascended beyond the average game of baseball right you're an ascended master of the game so in the 80s and 90s how many movies were there about like a kid that gets to join the major leagues or like some huge sports star you know takes him under his wing it was just this non-stop trope slash archetype where it was I want to say it was almost like that wise old man archetype where you're supposed to go and seek knowledge and they give you some kind of supernatural power. 
that was replaced by Shaq and Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing and you know what I mean? Like it wasn't it wasn't Gandalf anymore. It was, you know, Jose Canseco. That is a great point. The early like the baseball movies that like are the classic baseball movies. Angels in the outfield, major yeah, they league. All have There's some so many sort of supernatural element to them though. They they do, whether it's just the trope of like the wise man and the fool, or if it's like, you know, the 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 angels in the outfield where they're actually like you know it's got like god commands it because a kid made a wish about yeah. love or so yeah it was uh, well, uh but i but also on top of that there was like major league chew there was all kinds of spoof trading cards uh a lot of all of the, like the mac the happy meals and like the bring home microwave dinners it was all very centrally themed on baseball specifically baseball and like basketball Let's let's bring it back a little bit because this is Juan's inaugural interview. Still, this is the first time Juan's ever. Believe it or not, not a sports guy, bro. Many as many shows as Juan is, uh, and I have ever done together. This is the first time Juan is getting a proper interview. Grilling? Are we going to grill him? Oh yeah. Well, now that you're here, maybe. <laughs> Uh, you got that big chef's beard, so who knows? But uh, when it comes to when it comes to Juan's upbringing. Uh, I do want to jump back to something we were just talking about before you jumped in, Thomas. And, and we're going to get a little bit more into your backstory, too, because when you were on the show, we just talked about comic books. And I am, you know, I do want to I do want to kind of do uh, my job as the host here and, and orchestrate a symphony out of the three of us here. So bear with me now. One, you you mentioned doing an episode with Thomas that you found of the occult book club uh, you found one of manly p hall's pamphlets uh pretty early into your exploration of this type of stuff now given most of your spiritual understanding at that point in time maybe was based in your you know role as a, a musician in the church you know you're kind of absorbing a lot of experiences through there what was your initial like take on Manley's kind of because his perspective on Christianity was almost antagonistic. Like they were, they were antagonistic to him and his subculture. So he was kind of on the defense when it came to Christianity, at least with some of his pamphlets. Right. So what, like, did that rub you the wrong way? Did that make you curious? Cause I know a lot of Christians listen to these, like, you know, our show, the show you do with Thomas and the one-on-one podcast because it's a bridge between what their families are into and, and what their families think they're crazy for being into. Right. Yeah. And I, I, like I said, that's a, that's a topic. A lot of people don't know about on my show that I'm, I was born and raised Pentecostal (laughs) Christian. And when I first came across that, that pamphlet, that's one of the things I pointed out where it was like, you could sense, it was a very matter of fact, like, hey, the Christians have it wrong. Mind you, when I come across this sort of thing, and I was, I want to say I wasn't, I had already been open to the idea that there were other possibilities way before I started podcasting. I think that, you know, once I was in high school, I wasn't a researcher or anything, but I was into just the, the fringe topics, right? I always bring up the Bermuda Triangle or Bigfoot or all these other just crazy ideas so I was open really to anything once I stopped going to church and everybody that I went to church with like came out as gay or something, right? They came out of the closet. And it's like, oh, you were up there on the altar with me. And all of a sudden, like you're, 
you're you know marrying a chick or whatever which is fine you can do whatever you want as long as it's between two consenting adults but i did see anything like that any work like manly p hall if i would have still been in the church is considered demonic or not of god not godlike so literally anything you could possibly think of is demonic i mean they, they'd find a way to tell you that me drinking this Pepsi right now is demonic in some sort of way because of whatever. Who know, Who knows? I mean, that's just the way it is. And I think that, and that wasn't like when I was smaller, I used to go to like an old school Pentecostal, like the older generations where women could only wear a certain length of skirt, had to be, you know, towards their ankles. They couldn't show skin. So it, it got to that point, you know, when I was, a, when I was smaller and I would go with my mom, and they could only wear their hair a certain type of way. Very cultish-like. You can only wear certain things and look a certain way. And I think it was like when I started doing research and there was pod, when I found podcasting, I was like, wait a minute. You can, you tell me you can absorb knowledge while you're doing other stuff. You're listening. You can just put it on and, and li- like there's audiobooks. You can listen to stuff and learn as you're doing whatever, mowing the lawn or doing office work, whatever it is. So when I, when I started doing that, it opened up this whole new world for me. And then I really started going hard in the paint. And I've always had a thing for history. I was a nerd in, in, in school. So I always had a, whenever I would find something interesting, I'd remember things. So I'd, I'd always be the kid that when the teacher would ask, you know, when was the Great Depression? I'd be like, oh, you know, October 29th, 19, whatever, you know, I'd have the, like the same exact date and everybody like, okay. And I actually wanted to be a heart surgeon, a cardiologist for the longest time. And I was top of my class for like the, the nursing program. And I, yes, I did the nursing program. I did all that stuff. So again, I, I was always, you know, I got voted in my class for most likely to succeed, most likely to be your boss, you know, all these things. And then Life had a change of plans when I graduated high school, and here we are on the one-on podcast. So it's funny how life works, but yeah, I've always had this this knack for history and just fringe topics. And when you are able to find a crowd and there are other people who you can relate to in the community, it's like, oh, okay, this is cool because my family kind of thinks I'm crazy. My wife has wants nothing to do with this shit, like at all. She... I can't talk to her about it because she doesn't care about it. So it's like my friends are all on the computer. <laughs> I call my friends on the computer quite literally. And, and that's, I use the podcasting as a way of like getting this information out that I think is fire. And I'm yeah. glad some people are there to receive the information. And of course. Yeah, man. Wow. You kind of remind me of a guy I grew up with named Jesus. He's it, like literally same exact thing. It worked in the church then mm-hmm. went did the whole nursing school route and tried to and now actually I think he's he's doing really well in the hospital. But anyways, anyways, Juan, you're a fascinating cat. And I do think that uh the Juan on Juan podcast is a much better name than the Juan Hour. Uh most of your podcasts go on for three to four hours because you guys, uh, you and Thomas have so much to say when we put you two in a podcast room and uh yeah i i know the feeling a lot of my <laughs> closest friends are now online and and i think at first that was uh it was an easier transition because like the whole world was shut down you know like when we first got into 
podcasting, uh, you know, it was like right on the edge of, of a new world. Then the whole world gets shut down. And now I feel like a lot of us have different kind of trajectories for, for worse or for better. But uh, to bring you into the conversation, Thomas, what exactly, uh, cause you're, you're kind of, I guess maybe a step, back in the sense that you're just starting a podcast now uh your own podcast but you're not like totally green even though that's the color of your room because you've been uh you've been podcasting for i mean geez almost as long as as this show's been going on probably more than that but i remember you you were on episode 44 so uh of this show so for quite a while you've been guesting on shows uh for me, I feel like it's a necessity. Like, uh, <laughs> like I would much rather talk to you guys about some cool topics because it's interactive, right? Rather than going and binging like a television show about the same topics because I can't pause that and say, hey, what do you think about that? Or what if this happened? And so I just like, I don't know, like what we do for podcasting wise, for me, it's the best source of entertainment, the best source of just hashing out cool ideas and coming up with new concepts instead of just regurgitating the same stuff that the media is putting out where everyone gets around the water cooler and it's like hey i've got this new opinion since i saw this television show last night and the other three people that saw it are like oh what a coincidence i also have this opinion back 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 you know what i mean they just kind of like go off on it so the, the podcast and for me it almost feels like a necessity where i'm not even sure I want to I want to be like a podcaster, but I absolutely am convinced that I want to be able to talk to new people that have these cool ideas constantly because I think that a lot of these ideas that come up on these podcasts, they get heard by someone that and they turn that into a movie or a book or or whatever. So you might be enjoying it years later, but again, it's it's a very one-sided conversation. So that interaction with being able to especially being like a co-host on um I also do uh, what is it? Realities are sorry, sorry. The I, I co host some realities are, and then just being able to have like say Flat Earth Dave and be able to ask questions that I specifically want to know answers to. There's no other platform on the planet that lets you get that aside from just like you know emailing someone and asking them a question. But it's a completely different environment of having this like two way feedback. You can see what their facial expression is. You can see how long it takes for them to think about something. So you can judge whether or not they're super confident about the risk. Like that's that whole interactive process. There's nothing that can replace that, you know? So podcasting is the closest thing than all of us getting in a room and just hashing something out. Yeah. Well, and I almost feel like uh, this isn't quite possible just in normal life circumstances like for instance i'd venture to guess that each of us had our own very unique individualistic path into this stuff which is what makes us compelling and able to have these conversations because we're 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 not you know new to all this stuff uh but each of us kind of went down almost like a hermit's path at least mentally in order to get into this kind of stuff, because it requires, I mean, from Manly P. Hall's work <laughs> to, you know, all of the different Freemasonic lore and, and, you know, things written about them, things written from Freemasons. And then, you know, I mean, those are just two topics alone. Like Manly P. Hall's work is a topic in itself that I know the three of us are familiar with, but it's something that you just you don't share with other people and i'm wondering if this is almost in like a 
kind of uh, looking up as many levels as we can down from from the highest perspective. Like if this is kind of how these initiation schools worked on a physical level in the past, but now that we're, I don't know, I hate to use the word evolution, but we've evolved some stages up from where we once were. That could be true. Maybe now we're we're participating in that same dynamic, but it's all mentally. There's no physical initiation schools that we're going into because the information is out there. It's available, but it's not exactly popular, right? So that's kind of where the inwardness comes in. Uh-oh, Juan's got something cooking. <laughs> this is how I feel whenever I go anywhere. And if if you know, you know, if you listen to the Occult Book Club, they don't they don't know I'm free in the realization of the immortal reality. Right, so it's like this is a this is a manly P Hall quote, <laughs> right? Where it's well, almost that, like again, you, whenever dude, whenever I'm somewhere, I always think to myself like, I wonder if any of the if any of these people know anything about homunculus, and I'll just sit there and I'll just look around <laughs> like who out here knows? Oh, you know what I saw on my cruise by the way? I have to bring it up. There was a guy who had the shirt of the. You know the the background that I've had with all the Nick Cage faces, where it's like a whole bunch of. There was a guy on the cruise with that as a shirt, bro. It was awesome. And I was like, "Hey, bro, I love your shirt." He's like, "Thanks, man." And, <laughs> a, and a bar called Alchemy, right? Also, did I tell you the story? I, I did. T- no, no, I, I didn't hear a story. I just saw a picture. Yeah, coincidence that you get on a boat and there's a Nick Cage shirt. Like, I, what are the odds that that shirt Listen, gets on the boat? <laughs> Mark. Let's talk about the experience because it was the law of attraction, man. Anybody could have been wearing that. It's just the fact that you were on the boat. That's and that there was a bar named the Alchemy Bar. I mean, is that also a coincidence? That's weird. I mean, that's and he noticed it right at three twenty-two in the afternoon. Yeah, bro, three twenty-two. My room was three hundred and thirty-three. Like it was all. It was weird. I wasn't going to ask you about this because it seemed seemed like you weren't very happy about your last cruise, but uh, apparently there was some kismet uh there to meet you on the cruise so what happened so i don't know if it's my what i refer to as like my occult adhd because i think being in this realm of of things i think there's a line where you cross like is everything a synchronicity is everything a cult is, is everything esoteric when in reality it's not but is it right like that, that is it not or is it like you're in this limbo and when I went on that cruise, it just solidified the fact that I'm antisocial and I hate being around big groups, big crowds of people <laughs> and just yeah. being around like, so it all started when I was, I, I, had, I had messaged or texted Cheney, right? She's a, a fellow Florida woman. And I was like, oh, hey, I'm on a cruise, whatever, da, da, da. and I forgot what we were talking about, but I, she's like, oh yeah, people on cruises are in a trance, right? I go, that's a, that's a weird thing to say, right? And if you think of a vessel, right, like an alchemical vessel, a boat is a vessel, right? They call it a vessel. And I think that I'm not into etymology a lot, but I think that even like language, the way that they word things, I think it, it's, it has a, a magical aspect to it. So when she's like, oh, there's people in a trance. And I'm like, oh, that's weird because I'm going to be going literally into the Bermuda Triangle on this vessel or cruise ship. But what are the chances that maybe these people are in a trance? Because it was very NPC-like behavior, like just like being off. I don't know, man. I think that some people, 
they have the, the, the homunculus never gave back their, their driver's seat and they're just operating on whatever it is right and, well this is why i wanted to bring up the occult anatomy of man because uh thomas either knew this or was reading about this but you explained this in your episode about that book where certain people's consciousness is centered in their solar plexus and they're thinking from that reactionary nervous system sort of mindset and you know i don't know how true that is for everybody but there's certain there's certainly like an well, it's, it's like an person. animal spirit but i would actually say i don't know if, if homunculus might be one step too far you're calling soulless you know vessels and npcs but if you look at like bacchanalia or or sort of like dionysus worship where they would like everyone always like oh you know they drank um wine and they got drunk well they also tore animals to shreds and ate them live and like did all sorts of you know crazy like just in the the like natural animal spirit sort of essence that was just part of the way that they would live through and if you imagine that's the closest that commoners have today is to go on a cruise ship because it's one of the only places where you can just go and get trash and it's completely socially acceptable to day drink <laughs> to just like gorge yourself on just food nonstop and you know you don't have anywhere to drive it's just all about entertaining mm -hmm. your senses mm -hmm. for 5 to 10 to 14 days straight it all takes place again in a completely artificial manufactured environment literal fake trees and you go yes. underground and there's like environments that they create and they name it after this it's stuff a floating city bro but there's but there's no other that i can think of counterpart in the regular common accessible everyday world for a blue collar person to participate in that same amount of like Roman, you know, uh, sort of just like all of the vices, you know, jumping head first, that, that kind of like Bacchus slash Dionysus cult worship, mm -hmm. even if people aren't doing it by that name, it's, it really is the closest accessible way to get there. So well, it's not as it's NPC, but it's tapping into that same kind of frenzy. Mm -hmm. Even the ritual of the boat. I mean, there's so much lore around uh, being on a boat, I forget if you two were present for this conversation, but I remember doing a podcast not too long ago where we kind of touched on that, uh, the occult aspects of like the Navy and how yes. like sea captains would have like rituals where they would like literally beat a dead horse on their ship if they were going over like uh, the horse parallel line that goes across some part of the ocean i forget what it's called it's like the horse trade winds or whatever it is Dude, they've got crazy they also have a crossing ritual where they literally cross dress that goes back to like right. 1800s and before which is always funny when people bring up all of like the modern you know news reports and it's like my dudes this goes back centuries before your grandparents were around well, and that explains why it's a thing within like the elite and the upper echelon of celebrity, because a lot of the military was a part of creating that uh, infrastructure that is now like the celebrity industry complex, you know, and the whole obsession with these uh, really what they are idols, right? I mean, idols in the sense of uh, to be worshipped. But yeah, I think homunculus npc i mean that is a step too far i agree with you thomas i think the explanation has more to do with the person like as a person as an individual we are all here to go through an experience and to grow right just like 
you guys were reading the analogy in the anatomy of man on how the you know they are kind of comparing it to the a plant and how its stalk is constantly ascending towards the sun right um that's its period of growth i think human beings whether you believe in reincarnation or not i think there's an aspect uh, of all cultures that inform us to be moral and to you know do something uh worth accomplishing right there's it's just inherent to every single culture and i think reincarnation is inherently a part of that and the occult anatomy of man it's so important because we've forgotten it as a society at least on a plastic uh, superficial level right I, i think our culture kind of it it wants us to devolve right it 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 what's the word incentivizes de-evolution and understanding the anatomy of our consciousness and our body is how we ascend past that. And maybe why like the alpha type or like the bro, you know, the typical like guy that you would think is an NPC just because they're kind of conforming with what society wants out of a man, right? That, that's kind of one of the classic meme tropes, like for the incels, it would be a Chad, right? But I mean, I'm not an incel and I can kind of see certain people that I'm like, okay, yeah, this is this is NPC. At least this is what the, the meme uh, might define this person as. But there's another analogy there too which would be like the serial entrepreneur that doesn't sleep or see their family and you know gets you know gets a urine on their pants because they're always in such a hurry they can't shake it like that that's sort of like trope versus the busker and the guy that's like you know money's nothing man i just want to play my guitar in the street like that's that same kind of dichotomy exists where it's like i do this for the passion of the love and the art man and those soulless business suits that are just out to make the dollar like that that is the same sort of argument from that kind of a perspective right it's like are are both of those people i guess my point that i'm aiming for is back to that solar plexus comment you made that really stuck with me is are both of the busker and the businessman trapped in their solar plexus consciousness you know I, i don't know if the busker is even a good example of someone who's ascended past well, it's energy so it flows right so it might be in your solar plexus and maybe it rises and then it goes back down and it drops even further right. depending on the, the different types of things you're getting like if you just develop a nasty heroin and sex addiction you know the day after you just achieved uh enlightenment it's not like you hit enlightenment and it's like a checkpoint in a video game and like whenever you die you go back to that checkpoint like you can always go all the way back down and hit rock bottom I think everyone's seen someone that they saw as like the pinnacle of, you know, oh, this guy's enlightener. This guy has got it all together. And then a year later, it's like rock bottom TMZ or or not, you know, whatever version of that. So I, I think it's just not like it gets stored in one place. And once once you achieve some kind of like higher plane, you just stay there forever. I think it's like a constant effort. Fluid. Yeah, yeah, fluid. But it, it definitely feels like people can be sort of uh, on a general basis classified by which energy center for lack of a better term, maybe shocker is a more accurate term, which wherever their energy is dominant. Right. And the idea of, of understanding this physiology and the subtle nature of your energy is to be able to work with that energy and have conscious 
a conscious understanding of where your energy is centered, whether it's your solar plexus or your heart or your third eye. I think there's probably, you know, a spectrum for each one where you could be, you know, living from your root chakra, but the best version of that. It might not be as good as somebody who's living from the best version of their crown chakra, but it's better than somebody who's living from the worst end of their maybe, let's say, solar plexus chakra, where they're like to the average person, they've achieved a lot. They seem like they fit into society, but then there's maybe this kind of inner world that hasn't caught up to what looks like an outer evolution, right? I mean, people can have their lives together or appear so and, and be like, you know, crackheads, right? Or, or, or have like, you know, a terrible abusive relationship with someone in their family, but they like, by all appearances, they have their life together. And I think these imbalances really uh, aren't anyone's individual's fault. It's, it's more that our whole society has kind of lost touch with this way of being. I mean, Manly P. Hall, if he was around in our time, he probably wouldn't have written all the the books. He probably would have started a podcast. You, I mean, and vice versa. I think if we were born in Hall's time, we probably would have got interested in this kind of stuff and had to write books about it. Because what or else? died of dysentery at age fourteen? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's possible as well. I, he was from Montreal. I think they were they had plumbing back when he was when he was a kid but either way yeah dysentery was probably a threat to some back then but i i guess i haven't really wrapped up my point with a question but do you guys have any thoughts on what I, the diatribe i just gave uh, am i am i off do you think there's anything you can uh, add to what i just said still think it goes back to the homunculus so I think that, and by, by, but what I meant by we that, getting there. I did want to bring that up. What I, I meant by that was that. from a concept that we, and, and more Thomas, that we dove into on the Nicole Book Club, where again, quite literally, the homunculus doesn't give the driver's seat back, and this is portrayed in movies mm-hmm. and in shows that are on Amazon Prime, for example, Peripheral. Watch that show, and it gets into that same concept. It's a recent show too 2022 or 2021 so it's not like it's hollywood is they're they're in the know when it comes to these sort of things you know what else blows my mind too and this is completely related but on like a logical tangent but like one of those weird um these weird traits that almost all animals or at least mammals kind of share in common humans included is like you give a baby a thing right and once it becomes fascinated and you take it away it's like they want to get it back and then that feeling it's like taken to the extreme is where people turn into hoarders where they always feel like they need to reach out and grab something and keep it for themselves and make sure that it's always there for them and i and i kind of wonder especially after a cult and man and one of the more recent ones where we talked about the the cosmo conception which was a Rosicrucian book, which I think Manly Palmer Hall got a lot of his influence was from a lot of that thinking. That was by Max Heindel, right? 1906. But I, I wonder, because based on that, it's it's almost like you're born because um, with that feeling, because you know that in a past life, a homunculus has a very likely chance of taking over your body and not giving it back. So the second you're out of the womb, no matter what kind of animal you are, there's this feeling of like, that's mine. I need to make that thing mine, even if it doesn't have to do with food. Like you give a toy to a child or a toy to a dog, right? 
a lot of the times they can kind of be very protective over that thing. And I just wonder if, if that is so deeply rooted, not just in the reptilian brain, but almost in like the soul that attaches itself to your vessel with that little silver cord that Heindel talks about. I wonder if that like base feeling is that like, I need to make everything mine. I need to latch onto this thing and I need to like lash out and make sure that me, me, me is protected. And mm-hmm. that that's the, the thing that everyone's trying to kind of overcome. And that's the, however you want to like make it woo woo sounding where you raise it through your chakras or you bring it through the solar plexus or, you know, just like general terms of enlightenment, but it might just be that progression of like getting over the homunculus that stole your body three or four years ago, you know, like you got to learn to trust somebody, even if you got your car stolen like or some something. Astral PTSD or something like that. The yeah. I'm do, that's a great way of, of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Astral PTSD for sure. Now, Sorry, I didn't mean to just flash you guys with the Vitruvian man, but uh, here's the and now there's a dick. <laughs> yeah, here's a here's a cover of Manly P. Halls. I don't know if this is the cover because this is just you know some file that's available on the internet. But either way, um, I wanted to bring this up because this is the book that you guys were talking about. I think most recently. I don't know. You might have done an episode since then. Uh, whether that's released or not, I don't know. But the the most recent episode I heard was about the occult anatomy uh, of man by Manly P. Hall. And this version has this really crazy, I mean, almost over <laughs> overdone uh, chart here. What do you guys think of this? Is this it's like all the charts? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, this is kind of complicated, but it is uh, conceptually what you guys were discussing uh, when you were reviewing this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this would be if you took every different aspect. And one of the things that came out in that book and maybe another one was, uh, which I fell in love with, was Manly Palmer Hall describing the seven seals of the Bible as a way that you can read something in seven different ways and have it make sense each mm-hmm. different way. And once you can understand something in seven different perspectives, then you kind of come close to becoming a master of that topic. So this is an example of like the seven seals, right? You look at the body as energy. There's one. You look at the body as an occult anatomy. There's another one. You look at, um, there's there's an overlay there of like the Kabbalistic tree of life, right? So if you can understand it through that kind of spirituality, that's another seal that you can kind of, in, in a general way, but once you understand the same concept through seven different analogies, then you start to understand it. But if you only understand something through one particular frame of mind, that you're only like one seventh of the way to truly understanding it. That's kind of my interpretation of this kind of like overlay. It's almost like no one would be expected to sit down and learn everything you need to learn from this chart. This would be more of like, Oh yeah, these are like the reminders of the different thing. This is like the memory palace Mm -hmm. schematic from the top down, but this, this isn't how you normally look through a memory palace. Mm, mm, absolutely mm. yeah you would want to parse this out and understand each perspective uh individually hence the the whole analogy of of understanding the seven seals and when i hear the phrase seven seals i automatically think of the seven glands associated with the seven chakras uh you know manly hall says in that book that you know the I guess the uh, height that he could see into the future of medicine, the peak that we could reach, be you know to understand the secretions of the various glands of the human body. And 
who knows, maybe in some black budget lab, they have it all figured out and they're creating the, you know, super soldier serum that's eventually going to create, you know, Reed Richards and, you know, Captain America and all the rest. But, uh, but I think that there's a, there's a case to be made that people, whether perceived as crazy or not, uh, maybe schizophrenics, maybe mystics, maybe even artists can, you know, activate these seven seals. And I guess in other words, you guys put it best, impregnate themselves with the, the soul seed or the, you know, the, the nectar of that higher level beyond our physical limitations here. And then they're therefore maybe creating an ascended master out of somebody just like kind of going back to what we were talking about quickly, briefly before with uh theosophy, mm-hmm. but yeah. What, what exactly does that process look like? Cause it's not just sitting around and going home, home, home all the time. There's, there seems to be a very specialized pathway uh, to, to make it there, but maybe people, you know, fall off the path, you know, five steps too soon or something. And they end up in schizophrenia land and they were just this close to making it. But because our society is at this point in time, not organized for this sort of to be emphasized, we have people who run, a, run astray and, and they seem like madmen to civilized folk, but uh, they're really actually kind of interacting with something greater. I think that I think that's been the the goal that many movements are trying to achieve as far as like this higher level of enlightenment this this by right, reaching the godhead whether that be through Kabbalah or that be through whatever and I'm just right now I'm thinking of the monks that mummify themselves and they go through this whole process in order to achieve nirvana and it's a very painful process i think it takes them about three years where they eat a certain diet of bark and they'll even ingest rocks in order to fill their stomach up and they'll go through this whole thing and then they uh they drink this toxin or this poison to purge everything out from their system and disinfect themselves essentially from the inside out after they're they're dehydrating themselves with these barks and they continue to eat and eat and rocks and all these different things and then at the very end of their life when they're pretty much withering away from the inside out and dehydrating themselves mummifying themselves from the inside out they will sit in these little boxes and they will have a little bell and they are to meditate until the remainder of their life until they expire and they'll have they have to ring that bell every so often so that the monks that are outside watching them waiting for them to pass on to see if they were actually able to achieve nirvana they have to ring that bell and whenever that bell stops ringing every so often they know that he passed on now it's funny because their version of it is they achieve nirvana if when they're taken out of that box they're fully mummified and they don't decompose they're worshipped as some sort of talisman or deity in their mummified form. But if they're taken out and they decompose for whatever reason because they did these steps wrong, 
they're buried and they're disgraced because they didn't achieve this next level of ascension or higher level, whatever it is. And I think that even it goes back to if we want to link the homunculus to it, the in, internal alchemy. A lot of what you, were, what you were saying, Mark, is making me think of Chinese alchemy, which is a way that they saw the body as the lab where right? we are the philosopher's stone and, and our organs are these the vessels that, that you know, we're the only creatures Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill are able to take a substance that isn't gold and essentially turn it into gold and by that i mean when we read a book and we're able to transmute that book into content and the content is the gold so essentially we are the philosopher's stone turning lead into gold so we ingest all this information and we turn it into gold by putting out these videos or these episodes or music or whatever it may be a comic book pamphlet whatever you name it right that that's the gold it's even more so like uh kind of what you guys were describing in that episode uh, what manly was saying in the book where our brain has these blueprints for each one of our organs so like there's a you know uh as above so below kind of pattern these matruska dolls right you know we have our physical organs but then those kind of counterparts exist within our brain and i think there's something i'm getting at here and i know you both are totally equipped to to match this thought and maybe knock it out of the park but i do feel like the reason why there's such an emphasis on religion and maybe even cults in normal human society is to uh, throw people off uh, for you know in simple terms from uh, this path this very sort of uh, defined path that maybe ancient cultures were in touch with in a more cohesive and integrated way and then since then it's been you know secret societies and alchemists and and these people who are pretty much like outlaws to the authority, whoever, whomever they may be, depending on which, you know, part of the world the and time frame these people are existing in. But, I mean, it's the same story, different time period. Even in the colonial time period, I've found, you know, alchemists who are doing these kind of uh, different medicinal uh, tasks to help people. And they had to use sort of the terms that people were familiar with in order to not make them suspicious that, you know, oh, this guy was doing some sort of devil <laughs> work, right? Because that was kind of the, the, the thing at the time is if you, you know, screwed up and somebody got sick from what you thought was going to be a healing potion, well, now the whole community thinks you're a devil worshiper, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so I do but want... If you were skilled, you could turn that around on them really easily <laughs> by just saying like, oh, you didn't have the faith or you didn't... I know you are, but do, what am like, I? Yeah. It's like arguing with a flat earther. I know you are, but what am I? (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess that is more so what happened where the the person who ended up, uh, you know, falling ill to the bad potion ended up getting blamed for the evil. Their fault. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They were impure. 
Yeah. We tried the purest thing we could, and it, you know, she was so evil that it made her die. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, Mercury, go figure. But uh, when it comes to some of the things that we've already discussed uh, with this uh, mummification, there are some parallels, and maybe this is a thread too far to the left, but I think you ventured down this path. Uh, but Paracelsian alchemy, I've heard tell that there's uh, certain people that existed here in the States back in the colonial times that would take body parts of deceased people, burn them up, and then eat the ashes and who knows what else, right? So is this something that you came across with your homunculus research, like this whole idea of uh, medical cannibalism? You ever heard of the... Of the... Goodness, I have, to, I have to find it, but the there's there's this. It's almost like the Philosopher's Stone, and it's just reminding me of like Indiana Jones. But let me see if I can find the name of it. It's an we did it for an episode where it Is was it start with an M. Yeah, it starts with an M. I, Malif- talk, I feel like it's something like not uh, melanated man, but like mellified man or something. Uh, I think it's mellified man. So the yeah, here we go. So the mellified man is a mellified man, also known as a human mummy confection, was a legendary medicinal substance created by steeping a human cadaver in honey. Now, the reason I bring this up is because you're talking about medicinal cannibalism, which was a real thing during the Renaissance era, especially. There were times where they needed to guard cemeteries because the... the the, they were stealing corpses and it's got to do with like this Galen f- physiology, I guess it, it, it's what it's attributed to where certain body parts would do certain things. So if you ate right a lot of eyes or something, your eyesight would get better for whatever reason they would how similar how when you brought that diagram up, they associated every single part with a different astrological sign while every single part was attributed with a different magical property or something or other right something along those lines right very superstitious but the mellified man is a very very interesting one because it goes back to this chinese alchemy and there's books written about trying to find this it's almost like a philosopher's stone in human form where if you take a piece of this mellified man so essentially it's somebody who only ate honey for an extended period of time until their sweat became honey until their tears became honey, until their their feces became honey. And then when they were right at the brink of about to die, they would put themselves in a tomb full of honey. And they would eventually dissolve into that honey. And if you were to take a piece of this honey that this body was in, you would it would heal you. It would be like some sort of elixir of life type of thing. And it's related. How do we know, do we know that that's not the honey that Joe Rogan's been eating uh, that makes you trip that they find in the Himalayas? I have that's, some of that honey. And that is where the, the monks be tripping, bro, in the Himalayas. Come on. Joe Rogan actually has Terrence McKenna suspended in honey, and he just takes a hit every once in a while when he, when he passes by his body kind of floating there. So it says here... <laughs> Uh, to create a healing confection, this process differed from a simple body donation because of the aspect of self-sacrifice. The mellification process would ideally start before death. The donor would stop eating any food other than honey, going as far as to bathe in the substance. Shortly, the donor's feces and even sweat would consist of honey. And now there's a book <laughs> that's related to this 
from the 16th century, again, a sort of grimoire that's related to Chinese herbology where it would talk about certain fluids, like similar to the Picatrix, where it would talk about like, listen, certain nail, like toenail clippings or whatever it was, like were attributed to this healing property. But you had to mix it in with this other thing. So there's always been this, this fascination with wanting to how it goes back to what you were saying this microcosm and in order to understand this microcosm it would help you understand the macro which is reality which is the world which is whatever else the macro you know as above so below type of thing so i think that they were trying to I think this is what happened with religion as well. It went from like a very humanistic movement, like, hey, we could do everything. You know, we can heal ourselves. We can do all this to so like, hey, trust deity now. You need to put your faith and trust in God because God's going to be the one that's going to heal you when you could have done that all by yourself before that. But there was a there was like a switch in history before, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like they went from a polytheism to monotheism. It was like a whole bunch of gods and you had syncretism where they would take the certain God and put it all into one. But it all stemmed from moving away from that humanistic movement of, hey, you can achieve divinity through yourself. And now it's a brokered experience. And well, it was way more about convenience for the state too. almost every one of those consolidations from like eight gods into one. <laughs> Because usually what would happen is that like these two cities, you would have these like they would fall and they would both migrate to like a bigger city, but they're each bringing different gods with them. And like, well, no, the the God of death is our God. And the other city is like, no, no, the God of death is our God. So then (laughs) it's literally up to that bigger state entity to be like, well, technically we've got this other God God. Like, let me tell you about this God. He's got, he slices, he dices, you know what I mean? He's, he's got the death God from your guys. He got the death God and he's got a badass Eagle on his arm. And they're like, all right, I'm sold. And now all of a sudden that becomes the new guy. And that's where it's like, you get these weird chains where you can like follow a God back and say, well, that means this God and this God and this God, because it really is true. Mm -hmm. It's almost like following like a true, like, you know, genetic family tree, where it's like you are every one of your grandparents, but you're also none of your grandparents. It's like a weird. Hey, I gotta, I gotta cut out, guys. Let's please do this again because I feel like this could be a three to four hour episode easily. Oh yeah. yeah well, we, we're we're gonna plan an occult book club. We just have to decide on a book. On a book, it's gotta be occult you enough. Join it, Thomas. I appreciate it. Yeah, brothers. I'll, I'll see you guys soon. Thank you. Take it easy, Thomas. Wow. All right. Well, Paranoid American folks, you know where to find them. Just search Paranoid American wherever you are on your internet browser or social media and pretty soon podcast apps, uh, YouTube as well. But uh, anyways, all right, back to the grill, as Thomas put it. <laughs> this is this is the grilling. I'm grilling my guests. So huh, interesting. This puts a whole new perspective on the anthropomorphized, like, uh, candy you know uh mascots uh, mm-hmm. like the cereal boxes and stuff like marshmallow man you know and all that like geez wow so the confectionery man i can imagine uh i can imagine that that is probably something that that would have gone on in in egypt i mean goes back had... to the fourth century bce so i mean it goes uh, Herodotus was talking about it. I mean, they, they would embalm their bodies in honey. And even they said even a century later, Alexander the Great's body was reportedly preserved in a honey filled sarcophagus. 
And it was, again, it was practiced in Egypt. So there's this idea that, that the body would dissolve into the honey and become this sort of, there, there's a fictional story that I'm thinking about. It's called the devil, the dervish house. And it's a, like this Indiana Jones type of thing where they're, where they're searching for this mellified man where it's like, and again, it could have been symbolic because that's the thing about alchemy. It exists on different layers of reality or interpretation or whatever you want to call it. And it could have been symbolic of something else. But mm. I think that there are the people who, who are going to try these things for, there's going to be that Florida man who's always going to try and do this for real. Like, Oh, you mean if I can, you know, find a, a body and honey then I could live forever, right? I can have the elixir of life. And I think that's what happens with alchemy. I think that some people take it literally. Some people take it symbolically. Some people take it however which way. And there's no wrong way to go about it. That's the beautiful part because that's, that's essentially what Gnosis is. Gnosis is whatever your truth is to you and your point in time. Nobody can take away your truth from you. Nobody can, right? Whatever you find enlightening is is up to you. It's subjective how everything, I mean, I think a lot of things in life are subjective, reality, subjective life, the purpose of life, like who writes these type of books and who, who is the one calling the shots. And, and again, that's why I'm skeptic when something's like, Oh yeah, my God is the God. Well, how do you know that? Or like, how are you so sure about that? It's like, Oh, I can feel it. So just cause you can feel it means everybody else has to feel it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, there's a thin line that you are to draw there and that's, that's really a lot of the arguments that religious people will tell you is like, oh, well, I know God is real because I've, I've felt him myself. It's fine. I'm sure you felt God, but it doesn't give you the right to push it upon other people. I think that they should be able to find their own way and their own. There's multiple ways of skinning the cat. It's not just one way. And I think that there's multiple ways of achieving divinity. It's like what you were talking about. That's like I've covered essential technology and the different beliefs throughout different cultures and different religions on how they achieve divinity and how they are able to ascend to these higher places to, to be one with the Godhead. And I mean, you name it, there's everything there's, there's, there's various forms of essentially the same thing, achieving and going to heaven. For me, it was, Hey, you're going to have a mansion of gold. You're going to go up to heaven. It's going to be a great party. You're going to be worshiping 24 seven. And for other people like the Egyptians, they believe, you know, the opening of the mouth ceremony where they would invoke uh, entities and things into the mouth. They, they, they would if you were of royalty, the only way to achieve like, you know, to move on to the next level would be to have uh, this ceremony that they would do where they would like invoke this entity in your body and use it as a sort of talisman or amulet. And they would quite literally open your mouth up, you know, after you had been dead. And then that would somehow help you get on this throne with wings that would take you up into heaven for whatever reason. Like it's like some weird, obscure thing, but it, it was all related to like this tool. But what would happen to the people who didn't have the money to treat their fa their family, their, their loved one's body after the fact? Well, they just wouldn't ascend to the next dimension or whatever it is after they died. They would just be buried. And that's that. So it's like almost like this royalty thing. And that's why a lot of kings and Things were mummified because it was about this, this ascension to that next level. And so, I mean, you know, in voodoo, they invoke the deity within themselves. They use, they open themselves up to bring the gods down to them, the loa, right? The, the, these entities. 
And again, in alchemy, it's achieving the magnum opus and being able to transcend dimensions. Like once you achieve the magnum opus, the the light from that magnum opus uh, of turning that right the lead into gold, the light from that changes your DNA and you become this homo luminous is what they call it. And you're able to transcend and dissolve out of reality and affect reality on the other side. So it's like all these different things that that all these cultures are going about it. They're all trying to figure out like the one question of what happens after you die, right? Like what happens after death? And I mean, maybe that accounts for, for near death experiences. That's a phenomenon that people don't really understand. Right. I mean, I was at the brink of death one time when I was seven or eight years old, my, my appendix had ruptured and about, I think I was 30 minutes. They told my parents I was 30 minutes away from dying. So essentially I was septic when they were pulling me into the operating room. So I was literally at the brink of death as a seven or eight year old boy. Cause my, my usually people's, they get appendicitis. Mine actually swelled up and ruptured. And what that happens is literally your feces, it's leaking into your bloodstream. So you become septic. And that's what happened to me as a little boy. So I was probably 30 minutes away from dying. But I mean, am I saying that gave me some sort of perception to other things? No, I don't think so. But I, I don't think that anyone really knows what happens when you cross over to the other side. And I mean, at the end of the day, Mark, I think about this all the time. It's like, what if there's nothing, right? That's a very nihilistic point of view. But what if there is nothing? And we've been trolled this whole time. And it's just like people writing fan fiction this entire time. And all these books that we're reading about philosophy and all that's all BS. And you can just throw it out the window. Right? There's also that aspect of me, too, that I think about is like, why does the paranormal exist? Why is Bigfoot a thing? Why is Dogman a thing? Why are all these things? Why are UFOs a thing? Mm. And then I remember, OK, there's maybe perhaps the more logical explanation is that it's not all BS and that there is this other level of reality in which maybe you can tune into or it bleeds into our own. And again, I think that's a lot funner than just thinking that there's nothing on the other side, right? I think that we live parallel to another dimension or something and it might bleed into ours. I mean, there are some phenomenon that we can't explain like the placebo effect. Why does it happen? But I mean, we know that the mind is able to affect and cause a biological change in somebody by them just believing. And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning when you're in this worship and this this environment. Maybe it's the way that the church is designed. The churches are designed in a certain way in order to invoke and manage these energies. Right. You brought up the Vitruvian man. Well, Vitruvius talks about how certain rooms are used for certain things right feng shui is a sort of geomancy where it's about the flow of energy in your workplace and i you know i've kid i kid around with you guys when it comes to that but i do think it it, it holds a certain uh, you know truth to it because if you shift things around it would make sense that everything would get kind of jumbled up right it's like when you're having a long day and you sit down to try and have a podcast, sometimes you're kind of cloudy right at first until you start to get in that mood into that into that flow state, right? Sometimes podcasts are rocky at the beginning until you get warmed up. And again, I think it's about that management of energy. And I don't know, man, I think that reality is a lot more interesting than, than, than what a lot of people think about. And I think that's what I love about reading into all these obscure topics and, and really finding books that people maybe haven't dove into and 
reading it for myself and giving my first or firsthand account when it comes to all these different occult and esoteric subjects. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Great points made. And I agree with you. I, I think it's, it should be obvious to anyone at least listening to this show that we're living in a strange reality and uh, there's more than, than just what's in this lifetime. I mean, I, I'm a believer in that, but I mean, people don't have to agree with me to enjoy this show. That's what makes these podcasts and this type of podcasting so uh, special. So openness, right? But when it comes to being open, uh, you're opening tons of books. Be open with us, Juan. What's your process like? Because, you know, I'm a used bookstore kind of guy. I love finding a new used bookstore. Uh, I think one of the downsides of that is if the bookstore doesn't get a lot of turnover and you go and you exhaust all the good books, well, now you have less bookstores to go to. Uh, but I'm, you know, working on that, I have tons of books behind me, so I'm in no need for new books. But what's your process like? Because you're kind of different. You're more of a digital guy. Uh, do you rely on bibliographies to venture into new territories or are you just like searching away and seeing what comes up so the one thing and i think part of my i wouldn't say secret to success i wouldn't call myself successful but one of the things how i mentioned earlier it's all about having fun about not making it a chore and i think it's it's an alchemical process but i i research things that i find interesting whatever it may be at that point. And we all have our things, right? Like you do a lot of skull and bones. I talk about the homunculus. So recently, recently it's been something, but I think I'll let you keep talking. I have a point on that. I think that, I think the, 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 the trick is Mark to talk about things that you find interesting that you will be passionate about. Cause again, it goes back to that idea that if, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be embedded in that process. And when you put it out there, people are going to probably pick up on that if it's good, right? It's got to be good as well. So I focus on whatever I find interesting that one point, if I want to learn about X, Y, Z at one point, then I'll learn about X, Y, Z, right? For example, right now I'm learning about Kenneth Grant and the, the 22 tunnels of set. And, you know, you go down that hole, but then that whole rabbit hole, but then within that, you're going to find other topics that are either aligned with your other research that you've done in the past or open up a whole new can of worms. Right. And, and I think that's what people need to understand that we find our, our niches, I guess you could say. And then within those niches, you know, we are always expounding and expanding our knowledge on that subject. So for me, it's the homunculus while I'm always expanding my knowledge on that subject. Not that I always talk about it, but it, it always kind of sort of comes up in my research and, and unintentionally. Sometimes it just happens. And there it is. I mean, you can't deny the fact or it's similar to that topic, right? The, the homunculus topic. I'm just using that example. I'll be researching whatever and I'll, I'll, I'll find something that kind of sort of relates. But that's pretty much my process. I don't have anything that's like super esoteric. I just if I find something interesting, I'll jump into it. But it's got to be something that I find interesting and, and I want to learn about. Because once you start taking on projects where it's just like, oh, you know, this or whatever it is, it becomes a, a chore. It becomes work. And then it just it's not fun. And I think that part of this is not taking yourself too seriously. 
and having fun with it because once i think some people take themselves too seriously and i think that's one of the secrets man you know what i mean just take yourself don't take yourself too seriously and have fun that's pretty much it that's all i can really say about it yeah well and and i think when you're a host of a podcast it kind of comes you come to a point where you're like well i I don't always just want to go on other shows and talk about my podcast and i think both of us kind of reach that conclusion at similar times and you found the homunculus and i found the whole sort of scene research which i've been doing that's kind of led me down a couple different paths from the you know native american landscape and the stone structures and then now skull and bones and yeah it's just fascinating to uh to keep up with this i know i bust your balls a lot uh, about the homunculus and it's become kind of a a joke but it's a fascinating topic and it has so many connections and it kind of is weird since you've brought it up i feel like it's become something that it never was in the sense that it was just one of these like uh, seemingly, because it's it is very interesting, but it was one of these seemingly uninteresting kind of like back shelf occult ideas, and you've really bre- breathed new life into it. I mean, I don't know if that was your intention, but I have seen it in other places where I wonder, like, huh, I wonder how much of this is inspired by you know Juan's research and all the effort you're putting in, and and you know going on shows like Tinfoil Hat and you know, having a bunch of incredible guests on your show, you've really kind of, uh, yeah, elevated yourself through elevating the topic. I mean, uh, do you find yourself, I mean, kind of, I don't know, regretting that topic as your, <laughs> as your expertise? Cause it, it is funny to be the homunculus expert. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, I'm not, not that I'm unhappy about it. I just, it's a topic that's it's so bizarre right. and, the, and the implications that it carries it are so bizarre and that's what i don't like about it but again we're talking about alchemy and i think that it, it resonates on multiple different fronts and i think it's about i think it's actually coming up soon it's going to be even more in the limelight and it's going to be even more mainstream and a lot of more a lot more people are going to be introduced to the topic but yeah, I, I, I enjoy it. I think it's a topic that it's just, it's weird enough to where it could kind of possibly be true. And I'm, I'm a sci-fi fan, so I, I love anything science fiction. So when, when there's this possibility of this, right, it wouldn't be out of the, it, it wouldn't be too far-fetched because, I mean, they're, they're doing that today. They're creating artificially created humans i mean you know there's ivf which is in vitro fertilization they literally grow a test tube baby they recently grew a whole i think it was a lamb in a in a false matrix in a in a in like this out this womb outside of the body i mean these are things that they're doing now if this was a lost art or technology of the ancients that they were tapping into or if it was more of a philosophical movement a more religious type of thing because that's again that's the other aspect of alchemy it's a biological thing it's a a psych a psychological thing it's a metaphysical aspect so there's you know alchemy exists on multiple fronts and i think that it's right on all the fronts it's just how you apply it and how you and what you do with that knowledge that makes it valid and so yeah i don't regret it 
Uh, and I was actually introduced to the homunculus topic by Manly P. Hall. So he was writing about it in the 1920s. So I actually stumbled across the homunculus topic while doing an episode for the the occult book club. And then that just opened up a whole can of worms from there on out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I knew you didn't regret it. And I almost felt silly asking that because you shouldn't. I mean, it is something that is bizarre. It's interesting. It grabs people's attention and uh, definitely a road less traveled as far as these sort of uh, areas that we walk in. But uh, anyways, homunculus. I don't know if we've even defined it. We've kind of just talked about it. And I know there may be the rare person that hasn't listened to your appearance on tinfoil hat or hasn't listened to your show or haven't heard you talk about it before. Cause I think you've talked about it on my, one of our shows before, maybe Illuminati confirmed, but give us a one one as we wrap up here, because there's so much information about the homunculus that you've dug up. What I guess is, I'm asking is one one but also like what's really like compelling about the homunculus. What, what should people learn about the homunculus? Cause I talked about it recently in a totally different context with Brandon Thomas, the sort of cortex analogy where they show, you know, sort of like a mind map of what your brain thinks your body looks like or how your brain interacts with your body. Kind of different than a homunculus, even though the, if you search the word, you'll find primarily images of that. Um, but yeah, what, what, what do you think is, is most compelling? So the term homunculus itself is Latin for little man uh, or miniature man. And the the one that I focus on is the Paracelsian homunculus because the term homunculus didn't come into the alchemical sense of the word up until the 16th century, with what, which what some scholars consider a pseudo-Paracelsian text, the, the Natura Rerum, which is the nature of things. And in there, he writes about creating a basilisk, which is the opposite of a homunculus. And he talks about how to prepare your homunculus. Now, Paracelsus is, a, is a, a very weird guy because he really took apart the subject and it was more of a philosophical thing and a physical thing. But essentially, a homunculus is a what I've dubbed it as a meat and bones talisman. You had the likes of Aleister Crowley writing about the homunculus in the early 1900s. I think I want to say 1914, 1916, where he wrote about it. He wrote a book, Moonchild, which is related to a sort of homunculus as well. And so it's a meat and bones talisman. And a talisman is a magical thing. It's, it's something that is magic itself. An amulet is something that is supposed to house... A, an entity or, or, or whatever it is, think about like the, the genie in the bottle, right? The bottle is the amulet that carries the genie within it, right? The bottle itself is not magic. So a talisman is magic and a homunculus is a magical little man created through alchemy in order to give the creator godlike powers. Now, that's very specific and it can get right some people tell me all the time well it's it's very alchemical juan it's it's just symbolic it could very well be symbolic but my the evidence that i give to them is these grimoires that are so specific as to what to do with this homunculus in order to extract its magical essence 
which is one of the ways that you're able to 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 extract the magical essence of it and by magical i mean you can move the course of the stars you can you can become invisible walk on water become impervious to magic again and all these grimoires from the early 9th century 10th century and so so on and so forth there are various texts on this now if there is some cipher behind these texts we, we're not going to know because we're not initiated and we don't have the keys to unlock it but it's just very specific that you would talk about right vivisecting or dissecting a small little humanoid that you created with the womb of a cow that's just it's too the coding is so bizarre is what i'm getting at like it's it's too specific why not talk about something else and encode it in some other language but you had to pick the specific language right in order to to hide these ideas if that's essentially what you were doing and so yeah the the way that you're able to extract the magical properties of this homunculus is through sometimes destroying it and then the part where it gets interesting because this ties into cryptids as well paracelsus talked about how if you nurtured and grew your homunculus into old age and didn't destroy it and let it out in the wild well it would become a golem or it would become a gnome or it would become a, a giant or any mythological creature, right? Some sort of chimera, which if we know alchemists were also doing that, they were also doing genetic experiments back then making chimeras. They were making the cows with the face of a man or right snakes with, with the face of whatever else. Like there's grimoires for this. And I've recently translated some works from the 15th century where when you start to really read it and pick it apart you go man what what was going through the minds of these people that they're writing in this sort of way because there were people just like you and i with these different ideas so and i think that's what the homunculus encapsulates i think it just encapsulates this this other layer of existence and reality where somebody would think up of something so bizarre Right, like so a lot of people go, well, you know, movies. And when you watch a movie with a good plot twist, damn, I would have never thought about that. I would have, I never saw that coming, because again, you're locked into this, this. Uh, we were talking about this. We can call it the NPC mindset or the homunculus NPC mind, whatever you want to call it. But they're so locked into that one tunnel vision or, or or reality tunnel that they don't see anything else coming. And when they hit them, when they're hit from left field, they're like, oh, that was crazy. And I think that's what. To me, the homunculus is like, what are you even saying? <laughs> like, you can alchemically make a little person who is magical. Well, and then you start to break down like leprechauns and all these other lures where you go, okay, that kind of makes sense, right? A leprechaun is essentially a little man that does what? It leads you to gold. Well, part of the lure of a homunculus is it divinates for you. It tells you the future. It can... It can tell you all things hidden because it comes from the spagyric arts, right? From from the alchemical arts. And then Paracelsus, what I enjoy about the Paracelsian homunculus is that he takes it a step further. And he talks about, you brought up the Vertruvian man. Well, the reason that they drew man like that is because man to them was the perfect symbol, right? God, we were designing the image of God. Well, Paracelsus believed in the in, in pictorial magic, that pictorial magic pictures and images and sigils have 
they resonate more with people than any other thing, than, than words themselves and than music, anything, because they're able to see it, right? There's something about seeing something, right? They always say seeing is believing, but there's more than meets the eye. Well, he looked at the homunculus as a symbol of man and as, as, as this, right? If, if man is able to create this, he believed, <laughs> he believed that there was a little homunculus within everybody inside deep down inside of you and and femunculus for the ladies listening too there's a there's a there's a woman version of it as well but it was more of a philosophical thing and if you look back in history to the chinese alchemists that i brought the picture earlier they believed in this they believed that they could they had a little bit of twist on it but they believed <laughs> that they could impregnate themselves by meditation and the purpose of that was the purpose of the of the the golden little man in, in Taoism was in order to live beyond for the for the alchemist. It was in order to escape samsara. And I know we've talked a little bit about ascension or stepping over to the other side and what you need to do to achieve that. Well, these alchemists they believe that through meditation and through the the reversing of the way of like this force field that exists around everything. They were able to turn the light in on itself and create this little person that's in their solar plex. And when, when the, the little person was ready to come out, it would be projected out into the ether and it would form this golden little man that would take on its own, have its own consciousness, its own soul, and then would run out into the, into the wild, into the, in, in, to exist in this mundane reality for you and you escape samsara essentially because there was a piece of you still in existence in this reality and if you think of gnomes if you think of all these other things like did those homunculus that they projected out of their solar plex become gnomes or become these other mythological creatures that we hear about in these ancient scripture i mean you know the 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 art of alchemy goes back to the days of noah and that's why i said the alchemical vessel the magnum opus there's something about these these ancient scriptures, which we've heard it before. The the King James version of the Bible was created by alchemists, and they encoded certain alchemical ideas within these texts. Well, I think that the story of Noah and Noah's Ark or Noah's vessel is one of these alchemical allegories, because one of his sons was supposedly he learned the arts from Noah. Uh, that was passed down again, if you want to believe in the whole Nephilim thing, but. Uh, essentially that it comes from this from from beyond essentially is what it is like it comes from these entities that are guarding reality in, in in the noah's ark it was the watchers that came down and taught man or taught women right the arts and all this stuff and i think that the the, the term watchers is a an alchemical term as well right and the there's the biblical watchers that they were watching Right, they're watching the great alchemist at work transmuting reality into existence, mm. and then you have the watcher that watches over your body while you're in the astral realm. Again, a sort of astral homunculus, another form of the homunculus. It watches your body over for you, and then you have the uh, the Cartesian homunculus that we recently discovered, where they talk about in this book from the 1600s about how there's. This little black homunculus that takes over while you're in the astral realm projecting your consciousness into outer space. So I think that there's like all these different connections. And then some a part of that story is that the homunculus doesn't give your body back. It stays. It's there to stay. It tells you to pretty much screw off after you come back and try to get in your body.
you have to you have to bribe it to give your body back because he likes being in your body so again there's there, there's all these connections that we're not even trying to stumble across the homunculus and then in this obscure book from the six from 1694 we find a reference to it and we're like what how like, we're not looking for it but it kind of pops its head out every now and again and i think that the homunculus is it's got different lev levels of interpretation and I'm here for all of them, man. I think that it's a very interesting topic and I've traced it all the way up into the 21st century, man. I think that this is a technology that they're still using even till today, right? I think that the elites are tapping into it, but it's changed. It's changed quite a bit and it's not maybe this little man in a vessel, but something else. Who knows? I mean, if you think of Neo in the Matrix, he's kind of a homunculus too. He's artificially grown in that pod, right? When he steps out of it, he's able to disconnect himself from the Matrix. And we know how that, right? The rest is history. But again, they put this in movies. That that it's 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 stagecraft, if you will, are these cinemagicians. And, and if you think of, right, the world's a stage and, and everyone has their own role in it. Well, I think that they put these things out there in order to impl implant them in the in the minds of man and manipulate them some some way or another. But yeah, essentially the, the homunculus is a very multifaceted topic that I've done hours and hours of research into. And it feels like whenever I feel like I've reached the end of that tunnel, something else pops up that is related to it. And it's just a never ending thing. And that's what people have to understand how I talked to you, how I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of these topics, we're going to continue to talk about them because we're always doing research. We're always reading. We're always doing, you know, some sort of, of learning and there's going to be developments. We can't just go on one podcast. And how you said, it, yeah, we do three hour episodes, three and a half hour episodes because there's just so much content. And even then those three and a half hour episodes aren't enough. Because it can go on. And not only that, when we do follow-up episodes on some of these episodes because they're that deep. And also the people listening, they'll send me stuff all the time that's fire. And they'll send me one sentence that can take me down a two-hour rabbit hole sometimes. <laughs> you know speaking, I mean? of, speaking of, you said something earlier that I'm still stuck on. You said the opposite of a homunculus is a basilisk. Now, I've seen basilisks before. Uh, I've seen them in books, you know, the type I used to get. When you I haven't seen them because you die when you see them. <laughs> well, I've seen illustrations of them, and they look like, quite frankly, they just look like iguanas, like some kind of weird, like, lizard. Mm -hmm. um, like a so dragon. How do we know that's what they look like? Because according to you, the basilisk is the omen of death. Now, yes. What's the story with that? Is that like somebody tries to make a homunculus, they accidentally make a basilisk, and now they're dead? Like, what's what's the scoop with the basilisk? So it's very misogynist, I guess. If you want to, it's very sexist. This this era in time, and they the the purest form of man that comes from the sperm is the homunculus, and the basilisk comes from the menstrual blood of women. And the one that came up with this was Paracelsus, who was a very eccentric guy. And that could be a whole two hour episode on his own. But essentially, they saw women as lesser beings because they lacked the male appendage, if you, if you catch my drift. So when he took the menstrual blood of a woman and did the same process uh, as 
it is to make a homunculus incubated for 40 days. It came out with this beast that he labeled a basilisk that had the stare of a woman who was menstruating because they said that the, 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 the glare of a woman who was menstruating, it can, I think they, they say it can sour your wine by just, you know, her breathing on it or something. It's very, very misogynist and very sexist, right? Is what I'm getting at. But if it's true, if it happens or not, again, I don't know. And I mean, maybe these alchemists could have been tapping into something that we're missing today. Some yeah. sort of technology. I mean, if you look at Prague that's, and that's an unfair that's an unfair uh not your fault, but on their part, you yeah. know. That's like going to one restaurant and getting like, you know, <laughs> something off the menu and then going to another restaurant and diving in the dumpster and being like, Oh, this restaurant sucks. It's like isn't menstrual blood i'm not trying to be crass here but isn't menstrual blood like uh, you know it's just it's a form of like cleaning each month it's not like it's not equivalent to sperm equivalent right. to rising sperm from the ashes the but it, it's yeah. it's aristotelian biology bro which ruled they believe that people who had they, they believe that putrefaction would bring forth new life that they believe that when the chicken was warming up the egg, it was actually rotting the egg huh. and creating that chicken that would come out. That's why they were like, hey, because it was purely observation. And, and that's ex right, right, that's right. why I that's again, Rene Descartes. I think therefore I am because he thought that your senses could be tricked and that they could be tricked by a demon of some sorts that could manipulate your senses so i think that it, it plays into what i've been talking about this whole time that there maybe is a level of existence a layer of reality that we're not able to tap into because we're solely acting upon what we can see and observe and this is what these guys were doing in the 16th century they were observing that somebody had lice and aristotle aristotle was like ah right well, it comes from your too there's too much moisture in your in your body mark so you're creating these lice these these mites that are in your hair it's like no that's not ex that's not what ha what's happening but when they were seeing it and you know the the pimples would pop and the, the little lice would come out that like oh you're creating that yourself right well and and, and it part of that was you know and it's a shame thomas isn't here anymore because this is something you two were were speaking about was how mainly uh, encourage the process of analogy in order to understand the world around you. And I think, yeah, when all you have is observe, observation and analogy to go off, you're probably going to, you know, make some, uh, you know, you might be a little, I guess, actually to rephrase that your accuracy is defined by your observation, right? Mm -hmm. So like now we can observe things on a microscopic level because of, you know, telescope, telescopic technology. you're looking into an occulted world that you wouldn't otherwise right. see if you didn't have this right. instrument so again right. it's a world that exists well, and also think on another level again not to be crass here but you know i don't know how many guys in paracelsus's day were getting their ladies wet i mean back then it was all about you know just procreation you know, yeah procreation and don't do anything nasty because god might you know yes, send yes. us all to hell so maybe they didn't really know about like women's the finer aspects of women's you know sexual organs like mm -hmm. the you know the whole uh you know ins and outs and so on and so they saw forth. women as incubators and i mean this is yeah. you know, this is a quote that they, they saw them as purely as a substrate for man and again i don't agree with that but 
this was in the 16th century. This is something that, that they were thinking about back then. And those were the assumptions that they were making. So, right. and again, there, there's these things that you can use to pick up, to pick apart the subject and go, oh, okay, these guys were crazy, but there's still a possibility. <laughs> like, there's still a possibility. And well, it's not, and, and Mark, it's not just like any regular hillbilly in the, in the boonies that's mixed. Paracelsus is the father of modern day toxicology. He is, uh, things that we use in surgery today are attributed to him. So it wasn't just some regular Joe Schmo. We're talking about, you know, the guy who was a pioneer in modern day toxicology. He was, you know, the poison makes the dose. So if it wasn't for this guy, or maybe somebody else would have came along, but this is essentially the first guy to be like, all right, if you take too much morphine, you die. If you don't take enough, it's going to hurt a lot. So there's like the just the right amount of dosage where, you you know, depending on the person's weight, height, whatever, sex, et cetera, et cetera, that you're able to put them under and you can work efficiently, right? So uh, even yeah. too much honey can kill you, according to what we talked about before. I yeah. wonder if Paracelsus had stumbled upon uh, one of those cases where somebody entombed themselves in honey. That's that's bizarre. I mean, the... Uh, you know, confectionary man, as you put it, that's sort of a really sinister phrase. Yeah, the mellified man, or it's again, it goes, it's it's related to medicinal, uh, medicinal cannibalism, and again, there's a way of of turning yourself into this elixir of of life. But then, again, we're thinking on very three physical levels. Well, what if the elixir of life wasn't like a, a liquid or a vessel, or not, not even in a vessel? What if it was like a breakthrough of the layers of reality right what if it's right what if the philosopher's stone isn't an actual stone and that's just to throw you off but like this 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 process that that is able to peel back the layers of existence like something Mm -hmm. else something more to it than just what meets the eye because that's the exoteric stuff that's the stuff that you're able to see when you look it up on wikipedia the stuff that they don't want you to see is in the stuff in these latin manuscripts that haven't been translated that are stuffed away in these libraries that are hidden in, in medical journals, right? That, that are legitimate medical journals, but then inside of it, they have a whole section on alchemical recipes. Like what, what do you, what you know, I'm saying. So I think that there, there was this, you know, I stumbled across the, the brotherhood and this, this, this text that I was translating, they, they talked about the brotherhood, right? This alchemist brotherhood, this, the, you know, share it with your brothers, like all this stuff. And I think it goes back to this, what if society is ruled by this, these groups, these occulted groups, these occulted circles, if you will, that keep and hoard this knowledge to themselves. And they just let you fend for what you can with the scraps that kind of sort of leaks out, right? And kind of whatever people accept in the mainstream. And that's what you're playing with. Because that's the only knowledge you have access to unless you're initiated into these yeah. mystery schools. Yeah. Hmm. Huh. Jeez. Well, I don't know if this topic scared Thomas away because he did leave right after we <laughs> right after we brought it up. But uh, but yeah, it is it is unsettling to think like this is all kind of in the background of what we now consider like proper medical science. It's not us. Yeah. The you know average person takes for granted uh, the roots of these you know, practices and where they actually go back to. But 
Juan, you know, we can go on and on all day here. We've done many, many shows together uh, on both of our Patreons. So obviously, folks, please go and support us both on Patreon so we can spend more time uh, researching and putting together great content like this. Juan will quit his day job and focus 100% on podcasting when he hits that Patreon goal. Um, Me too. Maybe we'll go on the road and and visit Juan down there in Florida if more people sign up for the dang Patreon. And then we'll do do an in-person video down there at the Magic Bookstore uh, underneath the Magic Trees with Dr. Longo and all the the Florida crew. But uh, until next episode, Juan, you want to let the folks know where they can find you and what's uh, on the horizon. If you have anything that's going to be coming out soon, you can find me tjojp.com, patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. And yeah, I've got some stuff that's in the works that's coming out soon. Uh, people will know, I think it'll, it's coming out very soon. So people will know when they see it, but they, Again, I appreciate you having me on, Mark. It's always a great conversation when we get together. And yes, we've done, I think last I counted, about 50 episodes on the Patreon that you and I and Chris have been on. And other right. other ones, miscellaneous ones sprinkled in there. So it's over 50 episodes that, that they'll have access to that are, that are Patreon exclusives. And again, it's not exclusive because it's any hidden knowledge or anything exclusive because the people who support us they get a little bit of you know strawberry on top a little cherry on top if you will they you know i feel like uh the people who support you they they they're more important than the regular person because they're helping you right they're they're helping us break out of this matrix so they're gonna get a little bit extra and i I always like to make people feel like they're actually paying for something and i appreciate any support i can get so you can find my patreon patreon.com slash the one-on-one podcast and my website's tj ojp.com got the comic book and everything on there but yeah dude over 50 episodes we've we've podcasted a lot maybe not on the my my family thinks i'm crazy but we definitely podcast a lot well and and that's no hollow uh offer folks yeah we got a chock full patreon and one is a supporter of my patreon i'm a supporter of his patreon so you know we're not hypocrites what are you waiting for we're supporting I, i mean i I'll pull up my Patreon right now. I think I'm supporting 20 different podcasts on Patreon. So even if if you sign up for my Patreon, some of that money is going to go to another creator like Juan because that's what this is all about, spreading the love. And uh, hopefully while we break out of the matrix, you can elevate and break out of the matrix yourself, whether you're a podcaster or not, because you don't need a podcast to break out of the matrix. This is just part of uh, what Juan and I you know, our trajectories led us to do, you know, whether you're a small businessman, uh, you know, you start your own company of some kind, you know, man or woman, I don't want to be sexist like Paracelsus, Paracelsus. <laughs> yeah. yeah, bro. But, uh, <laughs> but anyways, yeah, we could go on and on and on, and I'm sure we will be back very soon. I want to join you guys for an occult book club episode, which those shows are are those Patreon only, or do you guys put those out for free as well? Yeah, no, those are out on the public feed. I mean, we again okay. we put out fire on the RSS feed and the public feed. I mean, everybody okay. gets love, but the patrons will always have that special place in my heart mm. that are supporting oh. us directly. 
I think the next time you'll catch us together will be on an episode of the Occult Book Club. And until next time, folks, thank you for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.